0: Down in Hancock County, Kentucky, where my wife Emily and I used to live, there are only 8,000 people in the whole county. It's not a very populous county, it's a rural area, but there are a lot of factories. They were very good around there at attracting industry, and so there are some very well-paying jobs in the factories and not a whole lot of people to work them, and so a lot of people are able to make a good living because of the way the economy is there. And so the way that they would talk about it there is that you could pretty easily, out of high school, go into a factory and get a good job, or you could go to college and come back and get a great job in the factories, Uh, be taken care of for your whole life. But you had to put up with factory life and factory life was hard. Uh, There were the difficult work hours because they've got to make stuff all hours of the day to be efficient. Uh, There were difficult conditions. There were loud noises everywhere. There were unions and squabbles and all kinds of things going on. But probably the hardest part of the whole thing, they would tell me, was that the people who were in power, who were running the factory, who had great power over your life, might care about your well-being or they might not care about your well-being. And that could be a really hard way of life if your manager didn't care about you. Uh, for instance, well, a friend of mine once told me about a factory he used to work at. And at this factory, they had what they called forced overtime, which was just kind of a, a way of, of business. You, know, you never knew when you had to make an extra order, and so they had to ask some workers to stay late to do it. And everybody accepted that as part of the job. But there were managers who would make a sport out of it in order to be cruel to the people under them. Uh, And the rules were that if you were there on duty, your manager could force you to work overtime, but they couldn't call you in if you weren't in. Uh, Well, what some of these managers would do was they would listen throughout a whole shift for all the workers and try to figure out who was most excited about going home, whose son had a baseball game that night, uh, whose wife had prepared a nice meal, and just let these guys talk like this all day about how excited they were to go home in the evening. Uh, And then, right about quitting time, they would stand right next to the clock, and whoever it was whose wife had made a great dinner or whose son had a baseball game or had somewhere they need to be, as soon as that person would come to clock out, excited to go home, with just a cruel twinkle in their eye, they'd stand right there, and just before they could clock out, say, hey, loser, you got forced overtime. And that guy would have to go back to his post and miss out on whatever he was excited about. Just because the managers could do that, they did it. Now if you've worked in industry or in business or if you read the Wall Street Journal, you know that stuff like that happens in business. People who are in power sometimes do terrible things to the people under them. We read about factory conditions all over the world. We read now about bosses who use their power to coerce and abuse women that work for them sexually. And some of us don't just read about it as well. We know the workplace is a dangerous place to be because the people in power can sometimes be cruel. And this really hit home for me in the very first pastoral counseling appointment that I ever had. I had just become an associate pastor. We were up on Cape Cod, Emily and I were, uh, and a man walked in off the street uh, just looking broken. I mean, he he was having a rough day and I didn't know what was going on. And he said, I just need somebody to talk to. I said, okay, let's go into my office. So we sat down. And before he could tell me what was going on, he just broke down and cried. And so that happens sometimes. And when that happens, you just, you just let them cry for a while. And when they're ready, they'll tell you their story. And when he was ready, he told me his story. Uh, he was a tree feller. He was a guy who would go to people's yards and get paid to chop down trees in their yards. And he had been struggling to build his business for years, but he finally found a really big, wealthy client who was going to pay him to take down acres of these trees that he had on his property, on a multi million dollar property. He was finally going to be able to build his business on this job once he got the invoice for it, once he got the payoff for it. So he worked for months chopping these trees down, sawing them up, getting them all in the perfect place, finished the job, and when he finished it, after all this time, the wealthy client declined to pay him. And so his business was crushed. And he knew that he could take the man to court, but that would cost more than the job was worth. And so he had no way to gain payment on this job. So cheated out of several thousand dollars, uh, he just wept at my desk. And as a young associate, I thought, what do you say to somebody in this situation? Well, I read to him the words that we are about to read from the scriptures. And for many of us, they're gonna be words that make us squirm in the pew a little bit. This is one of those passages that you kinda of hope your pastor skips over when you're reading through a book cause like maybe you brought a friend to church today and this one's gonna be kinda of tough to read through together. This is one of those for us. But I want you to know before we start that these words were comforting to that man in that scenario. And that when it was over, he hugged me and said he could not believe how much better he felt. Let's keep that in mind as we read this together. This is going to be James chapter 5. If you've got your Bible, turn it to James chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, grab the Dark Pew Bible in front of you. And starting from the back, it's on page 179 right there. We're going to read James 5 verses 1 through 12. The Lord's servant writes, "'Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries "'which are coming upon you. "'Your riches have rotted, "'and your garments have become moth-eaten. "'Your gold and silver have rusted, "'and their rust will be a witness against you "'and will consume your flesh like fire. "'It is in the last days that you've stored up your treasure. Behold, the the pay of the laborers who mowed your field and which has been withheld by you cries out against you and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in luxury and led a life of wanton pleasure. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and put to death the righteous man and he does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains, you too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example, brothers, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You've heard of the endurance of Job, and you have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Amen. So to understand James's condemnation to the rich, we've got to understand that it wasn't written to the rich in the first place. It was written to the poor. So if we come to this like middle-class Americans, like a lot of us are, and try to understand this text, it's not gonna make a lot of sense. It's gonna, it's gonna confuse us. But if we come to it looking at it through the eyes of the poor, looking at it through the eyes of James's original readers, it's going to make a little more sense. So before we get to what it says, let me show you first that James was writing to the poor and not to the rich, so that we can get the context kind of straight and figured out. Now, you might remember in the very first verse of this letter, James addresses the letter to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. We've talked about this a few times. Uh, That's in reference to first century Jewish Christians who had been persecuted in Jerusalem and as a result had been scattered across the known world. Now, when people are forced to leave their homeland because of persecution, you might imagine they don't have very much to take with them, right? They're not able to take their business and their riches and all their stuff with them. They just have to go at the last minute. So when they showed up, wherever they were when they received this letter, they showed up without very much to their names. They showed up at the bottom of the economic ladder. And we also know that once they got there, the rich people in those cities didn't treat them very well, and we know that because of what it says in chapter two. He writes to them, uh, talking about some rich people who were visiting their worship services every once in a while, and they were showing favoritism to those rich folks and, and, and doing all sorts of things they shouldn't have been doing, and James says to them, is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? So these people that are receiving these letters are being oppressed by some rich people and they're being drugged into court over these things. So the rich folks are manipulating the law to get away with cheating the poor. And so to the poor, James writes these words, not to scare them, but to comfort them as we will soon see. So let's look first at exactly what the first century rich were doing to the poor that God had such a problem with. Uh, It was rather simple, although it can be complicated to do and understand. They were cheating workers out of their pay and they were manipulating the law to get away with it. And you see that in verse four and in verse six. Let's look at verse four together. Verse four says, behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your field and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. All right? So you can see the picture there. Right? They're wealthy landowners. Wealthy people tended to be landowners in that day. They had people working for them. They were supposed to pay those people. They refused to pay their wages to the people, much like what happened to my friend on that day. And then verse six says, You have condemned and put to death the righteous man and he does not resist you. So James is saying this in reference to the way that the rich and wealthy were using the courts to further oppress the poor, right? They're dragging them into court. The court is supposed to be protecting the poor from the rich, right? And instead, the rich are using it to further oppress the poor, the poor being then denied wages, being even then denied enough that they can buy food and provide for themselves, and thus condemned to death, essentially, because many of them were starving because they could not get the wages for the work that they had done. So the consequence of what the wealthy were doing to the poor in that day was that many poor were starving. Starving because they had done work, but they weren't getting paid for it. Starving because they were on the losing end of lawsuits when they hadn't done anything wrong. And so James says you condemn and murder the righteous person. Now, jumping back into our middle-class American shoes, it's really important for us to see what God was condemning them for. So God wasn't condemning the rich for being rich in that scenario, right? He wasn't saying, come now, you rich, you shouldn't be rich, I'm condemning you for being rich. No, he was condemning the rich for what they were doing to the poor. And that matters to us today here in the States. Uh, We just like to sometimes have a thing against the rich, right? You hear the phrase the 1% used with like a sneer, right? They shouldn't be that wealthy. They shouldn't get to have all of that wealth. I should get to have some of that. But the Lord doesn't condemn the wealthy for being wealthy. It's not a crime to have wealth. In fact, it's often the blessing of the Lord to have wealth. He does, however, condemn the wealthy when they mistreat the poor. He cares about that very much. So for those of us who have sort of an ax to grind against the rich, like we don't like the rich being rich, we don't like the 1%, we wanna rail against them, we've gotta kinda shift our spirit a little bit, right? If the Lord doesn't condemn the rich for being rich, we, we shouldn't do so either. But the Lord does care when the rich cheat the poor. He hates that. And so that's what should burn in our hearts as well, right? When, when wealthy companies go to Congress and lobby and get laws written so that they have an unfair advantage over other companies and wind up getting to cheat in the game, that should make us burn. When people refuse to pay their workers fairly, that should make our hearts burn. But the wealthy being wealthy shouldn't make our hearts burn because that doesn't bother God at all. So that's a little picture of what the wealthy were doing in that day. They're cheating the poor workers out of their wages. They're manipulating the justice system to get away with it. Uh, let's look at how God responds to that. Uh, he essentially tells them that every dollar they have ever made, right, every nice artifact in their house, every nice dinner they've been able to afford, all of it is going to come back and curse them, he says. It's like, uh, like in the old pirate stories, like there's, there's cursed gold, right? If you take this gold, it's gonna haunt you for the rest of your life. But some of those stories are a little silly, but there's a little echo of that right here. There's going to come a day where they wish that they had never had any of that money. Uh, and the way that he says that starts in verse two. Here's how he says it. He says, your riches have rotted. Your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted and their rust will be witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It's in the last days that you stored up treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your field which has been withheld by you, it cries out against you, right? So do you see the picture here? All of their money that they're putting their trust and their faith in is going to one day turn against them and give witness against them. You can. You can imagine maybe a wealthy person in that day going before the Lord at the end of their life to answer for everything that they had ever done, which we'll all have to do, we'll all have to answer to him for our lives that we are accountable for. And on a table in front of them is all of their wealth, right? Their stack of gold coins here and their nice garment here and the nice painting that was in their house here. And, and these days it would be a screen pulled up with account balances or whatever, whatever artifacts of your wealth are sitting right there. And the Lord looks at them and says, what have you done with the wealth that you have acquired for the sake of my kingdom? And as this person is ready to give their answer, they're interrupted by the money itself. And the money says, well actually, actually Lord, we weren't a gift from, from you, he only got us because he cheated. He only got us because there was a labor he was supposed to pay that he didn't pay. He only got us because he ripped his business partner off and took the whole business right out from under him. We weren't a good gift from you. That's not how this worked. Before the person can even get their defense out from what they've done, the riches are testifying against them. And there are rich men and women who today will experience the same thing. All of us will go before Jesus and answer for what we have done with the wealth that he has given us. But some of us will have to hear our very credit cards say, he only got access to me because he cheated. She only got access to this wealth because he cheated. And there will then come a day for a few of us perhaps when we will wish that we never had access to that wealth for the way that it is testifying against us and even as the vivid picture says, eating our flesh like fire. These pictures are powerful pictures. Flesh being consumed And later after that, a picture of of animals being fatted up and going to the slaughter. He says, you've lived in luxury on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You've fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. Slaughter. Some of you have lived on a farm before. You you know what that's like, right? You've seen that before. I used to have a steer when I was a young boy that I would have to feed and could see a little bit of what my mom's giggling right now because she was the one that made me do it. But yeah, some of you have seen that and, and you know if you've seen it, that pigs and cows are not models of self-control, right? When they're eating out of the trough, like it's going down, right? They're, they're grunting, they're going for it, they're pushing the other animals out of the way. And so when the farmer comes in and just loads the trough up with all kinds of extra food, I mean, they're fighting each other to get to it. There's no table manners whatsoever going on here and no realization that the last hundred animals that this happened to suddenly disappeared off the farm and something happened to them right all they have is their eyes on that food and they are ready to gobble it up and what they don't realize is that it's all leading to a terrible day for them right it's all leading to a slaughter and there are greedy rich people all in that day and we have to assume in this day too who are going through the same thing, right? Like animals just gobbling it up at the trough, no sense of others, no sense of caring for others, and no realization of what is coming down the road. Just another victory in the business world, another victory in the business world, another victory in the business world, and then all of a sudden, it comes to an end. What a powerful picture that James gives to us. Now, I'm gonna pause here Um, because when James's letter was read, uh, it was probably read in the presence of the church with a few wealthy visitors there as well, uh, who would have been guilty of the things that he was talking about. And so I want to ask you right now, if you're a follower of Jesus, I just want you to ask to pray for anyone who may be among us who is in that very situation right now, maybe hearing this and hearing for the first time that this whole track record of business victory will come to an end one day and they'll have to answer for it. Let's pray for them as I just talk to any of you who may be in that scenario in the first place. I want you to know that the Lord sees everything that we do. And if any of us have ever ripped off business partners, if any of us have ever cheated to get ahead in the business world, the Lord sees that and he remembers it. He does not forget it. And I hope that if that's you, you would take that seriously and even cry out to yourself, now what can I do to be saved from that? And what you need to know is that these words are true that condemnation will come. And if you're not following Jesus and you have cheated others, it will consume your flesh. But the good news is that someone else has offered his flesh in your place. Someone else chose to come to earth To live a perfect life and never cheat anyone and then offer his own body and his own blood to be torn and shed for others, for sinners like you and me. And he calls us now to come back and follow him. And so if you would have that forgiveness that he offers, that grace that he offers, there is nothing that you have to do to earn it. There's nothing that you have to do to, to pay back what you have done. No, all you have to do is trust And He calls you to come and follow Him, to turn from your sins and walk in His ways. And if you want that, I want you to know that it's open to you right now. After the service today, you can come and talk to me about it, or talk to any of our leaders about being baptized in His name, joining our church, being counted among God's people. How glad we would be if the Lord worked through this message to work salvation into your heart. That's what these words mean for those who have robbed the poor. Uh, But here's what they mean for the poor who have been robbed. And here's why I have been saying that this word in the end is a word of comfort. I read verse earlier before verse four, uh, and it started like this, and I didn't finish it. It says, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your field, and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. But then look at how it ends. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Do you see why my friend cried that day when I read these words to him? Cheated out of, I think it was $8,000 by someone who had millions to spare, crying out to the Lord, thinking that no one hears him. But he looks to the word and he sees that all of his cries have been heard by God in heaven. And that is a message of comfort for those who have been treated. Your cries are heard by God in heaven. Dear worker who was cheated out of a promotion or cheated out of fair pay and then went home and wept powerlessly while you lost your home. Your cries were heard by God in heaven and he will not forget you. Dear woman who screamed at the hands of a man and wept over it later, if you screamed even silently, the Lord heard you in heaven and he hears your cries every day. And you may think that in his patience that he didn't listen or that he has forgotten, but he heard and he remembers and he will not forget you. You see, this is one place where Jesus' truth, though it's hard to take in, though it's hard to, to receive, it offers so much more to the oppressed than the world could ever offer them. I don't know how I could go through life seeing the things that we see on the news, believing that there is not a God in heaven who hears people's cries. How could we bear to think that he's not there listening to all of those cries? And you, you may think something in response like, oh, well, we should be the ones caring for the poor. We should be the ones hearing their cries. Well, yes, we should. The Lord commands us to reach out our hands to the poor, but we could never hear all of their cries. We could never care for all of them, but there is one who can there is one who hears every last one of them someone who cares for them and loves them dearly and that is why as this passage continues on what verse 7 says is so important after hearing the rest of them let's look at verse 7 together he says therefore be patient brethren until the coming of the lord He says, you suffered yesterday, you suffer today, you expect that you're going to suffer again tomorrow, but be patient, for he is coming. And if you wanna know what that looks like, he gives us two very vivid pictures of it. The first one, a farmer plants seed, right, and he has to wait for the produce. Uh, across the street from where Emily and I live, they just planted corn in the field. We wondered if they were gonna plant anything this year, what it was gonna be. It's corn, now we know. And we see little plants about this high because uh, the farmers went out there with the tractors and on those beautiful rows, they planted either the seeds or the small plants. I don't know which, but now you can see just little plants there, right? Those farmers worked so hard that day operating all that equipment, getting the ground just right. They had to plow before that. They put it in there and they went back to their homes that day without any corn. All they had to show for it was less seed than they had the day before, right? And then the next day, they got to come out and do more work. There's pesticide to spray. There are weeds to pull, and the plant gets a little bit bigger, and they still have nothing to show for their labor. There's not this big abundance of corn in the barn yet. And they go back, and they do more work, and they go back, and they do more work, and they have nothing to show for it, and more work, and no corn to show for it. And then one beautiful day in the fall, there's the corn, right? All of a sudden it just appears and there it is. And now they've got return for all of that work that they had done. So they're not sitting there on the porch just waiting for this to happen. They're working hard. They're not gaining everything every day as they do this work. No, they do it all knowing that the day of harvest is coming down the road. There will be a day when they will reap this plant that they have sown. And so it is with the Christian as well. We do work and often see no reward for it. We, we walk in the fruit of the Spirit, we obey the Lord, and we don't see much in return for it sometimes. Why would we do that? Why would we keep walking in faithfulness and not get immediate rewards? Well, because we believe that a day of harvest is coming. And so we wait just like the farmer does for the day of harvest. He gives us another picture and that's the picture of Job and the prophets, right? Some of you know the story of Job and how he suffered greatly but the Lord's purpose the whole time was to bless Job, right, and now we treasure him as a man of God. And the same was true for the prophets. Some of their stories aren't as well known, but they preached the word of the Lord and what they got in return was usually ridicule and persecution from the king that was in power that they were preaching against, right? They didn't get a whole lot of riches and wealth for what they did. But now we look back and we treasure them. We treasure the ones who persevered. Many of you know who Isaiah is. Some of us name our babies Isaiah. I wonder if any of us could name the king that had him sawn in half. I had to look up that king this week, and I still can't remember it. Whose name do we treasure? It's Isaiah, the one who suffered that day, and the one who endured not, I think it was Joash, maybe the king. I don't know who it was that had him killed, but that's not the one that we love. That's not the one that we treasure. It's Isaiah. Why? Because he waited patiently, and he suffered patiently. So we will be treasured in the future. We will receive our harvest if we wait patiently for the coming of the Lord, knowing that he hears our cries. Okay, lastly, I just want to give you two takeaways because the last thing that James does is he gives us two pictures of what your life will look like If you're waiting patiently for the God who hears our cries in heaven. Two really practical ways that you can just look at life and either look for change or look for what's going on there. First, uh, verse nine, let's look at verse nine together. He says, do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged for behold, the judge is standing uh, right at the door. Now this might feel like it's out of left field at first, right? Like wait a minute, I thought we were, now we're now we're talking about grumbling. How did we get to that? Well, think about it. When when you're under stress, right? When when it, especially if you've been cheated and things are going wrong, you know what that feels like, right? Stressful, frustrated, and what do you tend to do when you're stressed and frustrated? You take it out on the people who are close to you, right? You start getting to grumbling, you get into complaining about each other, and all sorts of fights start brewing up because we're all just feeling so tense and stressed by what's going on. I've heard wives say before about their husbands, I have to remember that he's not mad at me, he's just mad around me, right? There's, there's a difference, right? Well, that's what we do sometimes. We take it out on the people who are around us. We start grumbling against them. We start complaining against them, but... If we're waiting patiently for the Lord who is returning for us, if we are crying out to him and bringing our complaints to him, we're not gonna turn on each other in that way, right? Because we've gotten our complaints out. We've gotten our venting out. We've trusted the Lord in our sorrows. So James says, don't grumble against each other. Don't complain against each other. And he puts it right where he puts it for a reason. And then similarly, verse 12 has another one. Let's look at verse 12. That'll be the last thing we look at today. He says, But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall into judgment. Now, if you follow Jesus, those words might sound familiar. They're words that Jesus said himself almost word for word. And James puts it in here because if you're living a life being cheated by others and waiting patiently for the Lord, you're going to develop a reputation for honesty, right? You're going to get cheated and you're not going to cheat in return, right? You're going to get ripped off. You're not gonna rip off from return, you're just gonna keep being honest. Well, you do that long enough and you'll have the kind of reputation where people can look at you and ask you a question and you can say yes or no and they just know that you're telling the truth. Right. On the contrary, the kind of people that James was rebuking here, right, the, the wealthy who were ripping off the poor, I mean, those kind of people will stand up and they'll make a press release and nobody will even listen, right, because nobody believes what they're saying. We know a corrupt company when we see one and we don't listen to them. So then they've got to they've emphasize and they've got to swear and they've got to promise and make big, great promises that what they're saying is going to come true. And James says, don't do that. Just live an honest life so that when you say yes, people know it's yes, and when you say no, people know that it's no. If you live an honest life following Jesus, you should have no trouble building up that reputation over time as you wait for the return of the Lord. So has anyone wronged you? Does your heart still wrestle with the injustice of the wrongs that have been done to you? Wait patiently For the coming of the Lord Jesus. If the one who wronged you does not turn from sin and follow Jesus, Jesus will appear and they will pay for it. And if the one who wronged you does turn from sin and follow Jesus or has turned from sin and follow Jesus, then Jesus bore the penalty for whatever they did to you in his own body himself. So let's rest in that and let that be enough to satisfy our desires for justice. Let his wounds and his torn flesh and his flowing blood quiet our desire for justice, for God is just. And every sin ever committed against you or against your loved ones, will be paid for, either by the offender or we pray by the Lord himself. Let's pray together. Father, there are some of us right now who had to dig up old wounds as we talked about this. And we join together right now to pray for them, uh, to ask that you would help them to see that you hear every cry. That they could even imagine, if they, if they have to imagine that scenario over again, that they could imagine it with you there listening, wiping away every tear, hearing every cry. And God, would you move each and every one of us to trust you fully? For it is you that hears the cries of the poor. It is you that hears us when we pray. It is you that hears us when we complain. Would you teach us to wait patiently for you? For God, day after day and year after year goes by, and news cycle after news cycle goes by, and we know that you are waiting patiently to return. We know that you want many more to come to you before you send your son to return, and that that's why you're waiting, but how tempting it is, God, to think that it's because you've forgotten about us or that you're not coming back for us. Help us to remember that you are and to wait patiently for you. Help us to live that out in the way we talk to each other and the way we bring our complaints to you and don't grumble at each other and hurt each other with our words and the way that we walk and live honestly, even in a world that's ripping us off, Father. Would you help us to do that well? Father, we ask for your great blessing on us as we strive to walk in obedience to your word. In your son's name we ask, amen. Amen.